Amen. So one of the things that I just learned is how badly I just need to sing. That was awesome. I mean, I hope that was good for your soul, man, because it is just good for the soul to just sit back and to take the word of the, God, of the living God and, and, and that is set to music like that and to just praise God and to sing it out. I wiped the inside of my glasses like 14 times and I just gave up. So just know that, okay, I'm seeing you through little speckles of tears or actually not seeing you, but looking for you, seeing these guys. I want to take you back in time for a minute. I figured that's probably a journey everybody would enjoy. And I don't want to just go back a month. So I think we'd probably all sign off on that. You know, like we'd take a month. If we could go back in time for a month, a month ago seemed a lot easier than today. And if we could freeze time a month ago, you know, we'd do it. I mean, we'd hope that our kids would still be able to grow up and, and eventually get a job. So that would be cool if that could be made part of the deal. But in either case, we'd go back at least a month. I want to go back farther than a month. I want to go back all the way to June of last year. And the reason that I want to do that is because in June of that last year, after 18 years as the pastor of this church, I took my first ever sabbatical. And if you don't know what that is, a sabbatical is, is a season of time in your life in which, in my case, because we have an amazing staff, I was able to take almost 100% of everything that I do vocationally, professionally, and hand it off to super amazingly capable people who probably did a better job with it than I would have if I was here. And to shut down entirely. Emails, not taking them. Text messages, not getting them. Phone calls, unless you're my wife or maybe one of my kids, I I didn't get them. I offloaded absolutely everything. And because I knew that the goal was shut down and because I know myself, uh, I literally got on a plane and I left the country. (laughs) That's, That's what it takes. I'm just not a shut down easy kind of a person. So I got on a plane on June 1 and I flew to Spain. And when I was in Spain, I did a walk, a hike really, that's called the Camino de Santiago. So it starts up on the border. You can see a map here of Spain and France. And then it goes mostly west all the way to the city of Santiago. And it's about, you know, like I said, 500 miles. And so all in, I was in Spain for 43 days. I walked 39 of those days. And the first 24 of those days, I was all by myself. So Beth came on day 25, which I was living for, man. I mean, that was great. And then she finished it out with me and she did about 200 to the 500 miles, which is substantial. But I just want to say that the first week or so that I was there was seriously one of the most difficult weeks of my life. And it wasn't difficult because I had a lot to do. It was difficult because I had zero to do. It wasn't difficult because I had crises to manage. It was difficult because I had nothing to manage. It wasn't difficult because I was around people and in meetings and we had to make decisions and do things. That kind of stuff energizes me for the most part. It was difficult because I was around people and I didn't know any of them and like none of them spoke my language. But I was in their country. So I mean, you know, that's on me. I met some English-speaking people kind of as the journey went and people from all over the world, it was really beautiful to make new friends and to do that kind of thing. But, but I was very, very much alone and just felt very much out of my element. Like everywhere I went was new and different. I didn't know where I was half the time. I mean, you know, like I'm using Google Maps to find the hotel and using an app to make sure I'm still on the path and Couldn't eat when I wanted to eat, which if you know me is kind of a deal, you know, like I get to Madrid, it's 5.30, even with the jet lag, I'm looking for dinner. Through Google Translate, I'm going into these restaurants and going, hey, um, can I eat dinner here? And they're like looking at me like I'm nuts because if you don't know this, dinner in Spain is at 8. 
unless it's Friday, and then it's at nine. So I ate a lot of snack bars, guys. And after about two days of this walk, I got to the city of Pamplona, which is a great city, by the way, really cool. It's where they run the bulls and all of that. Uh, And I stayed in a hotel, which was the sketchiest place that I stayed in on the entirety of the Camino. Most of the places I stayed in were really actually pretty good, you know, but this place was, I mean, it was unnerving and I was massively unnerved already. So I get there and that night was like the major crisis for me because I'm thinking, this is a disaster. What have I done? I can't believe I did this. I totally should have seen this coming and I saw it coming, but I didn't know how hard the detox was going to be. Like it was a crash landing. I'm anxious. I'm fearful. I'm lonely. I'm cut off from everybody and I'm hating myself for doing this. And the worst part about it is I felt like I couldn't get out of it. Like now I'm stuck here. I mean, what am I going to do? You know, I I go to one of these little villages and call a cab for 150 bucks to take me to another city and find a train and then get a train and go to Madrid and then go to Madrid and then get a flight and then come home six weeks early and tell my wife who's planning to come three weeks after that, hey, you know, sorry, honey, I just canceled the whole thing. We're going to eat the cost and it's over because I just couldn't handle it. So like I felt like I have no choice but to stick this thing out. And it's suffocating, it's claustrophobic, it's like being on an elevator with capacity of six, but with like 43 people. And you're just looking up at the numbers, because that's where everybody looks in the elevator, it's socially inappropriate to do otherwise, unless somebody has a pet, in which case, you know, you can do that. But really, and I mean, you're just panicked as you're sitting there, and you're thinking to yourself, how much longer is it going to take me to go 14 floors? Except it wasn't 14 floors, it's 43 days. It's a lot of days. So that night in Pamplona, I'll spare you the details, I was up all night. Finally at six, I'm like, well, I'm up anyway. That's it. I got my stuff. I got ready to go. I brought my luggage down the stairs from three floors up because I refused to get in their tiny little elevator because I wasn't sure it was going to work. I delivered it to the concierge because for five euros, you could have them take it to the next hotel. So why would you not do that? So I did that and I had my little day pack with water and snacks and toilet paper, self-explanatory, also part of the stress. I choked down some dry cereal because that was all I could handle that morning. And I set out on a 14.8 mile walk to a little town called Puente Lorena. One of the most beautiful walks on the Camino, one of the most physically difficult walks on the Camino, like up and over a mountain. It was really tough and I was really tired and I got to the next town. And that night I just, you know, like after I ate, so like at 10, I just knelt down and said, okay, God, here's the deal. You have trapped me here. And I'm not happy about it. I know that I'm a wimp. I know that I'm high maintenance. I know that I'm blah, 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 whatever. Like you have trapped me here and here I am. I can't leave. So I surrender. I surrender to whatever you want to do in this. I surrender to whatever difficulties you're going to give me in this. I surrender to look for any joys that I might find in this. I surrender to look for the purpose that you tell me at least you have for me in this. And after that, it was like the greatest thing ever. I grew a beard. So there you go. Ryan likes that. 
I just figured, you know, what the heck? I mean, where else am I going to do that, right? I stopped and took pictures of flowers, which is bizarre if you know me. Like it was so funny. I spent like the first two weeks racing. I'm racing from one hotel to the next because I'm taking territory and it's a challenge and that's the way that I'm wired. And and I have poles, by the way, and I know that that sounds really stupid looking to you, but actually the people who don't have the poles are stupid looking and everybody's looking at you like, what is your deal? You need poles. But in any event, I I would be hiking along, you know, and I'd pass by these flowers and I'm racing. I'm racing to nowhere. Like I'm racing to get to another town at 12.30 instead of 1.30. Incidentally, lunch was at 2.30. So like, what's the hurry? And then I'm going to get there. And you know what I'm going to do when I'm there other than eat lunch? Nothing. Because there's nothing to do. I prayed, I journaled, I did all kinds of wonderful things, but I realized one day I am racing off to nowhere and I'm passing all these beautiful things and all of a sudden I started actually noticing beautiful things instead of just racing. And so I'd stop, you know, like 40 feet past a flower and rebuke myself and go back and take a picture. I have so many pictures of flowers. My kids think that's ridiculous. They're like, I can't believe you were sending us pictures of flowers. What's your problem? I'm like, that's not a problem. It was awesome. I took pictures of birds. You can see here, these are some storks. So the storks fly from Africa to northern Spain at certain points of the year, and this was one of those times. And they make this enormous nest way up high, usually on a church, which is, this is a picture of that. It was remarkable. About five or six days from the end, I'm calculating and I'm thinking to myself, holy cow, I'm actually going to make it. <laughs> like, I'm going I'm to make it all the way to the end, which was I had no category for at the beginning when I'm looking at 43 days. And then I thought to myself, oh, no, this is going to end. When we got to the end, somebody from this church, uh, Maritza Fernandez and her daughter Sophia had done this walk, and, and I had been communicating with them through WhatsApp. So I set up a different way to communicate. And they were texting me stuff each day going, oh, look for this and don't miss this. And this is a challenging walk. And this one's going to be, it was really helpful. It was like having a personal guide. But Sophia, her daughter, uh, texted me and she said, you know, what do you feel like God taught you in this? Like, what did you learn? And I thought, oh man, you know, I mean, how am I going to do this? I, I'll, you know, I'm using my thumbs here. There's 40 things to choose from. I chose one and I'm going to read it to you. I said, I learned that I need to surrender to the life that God gives me, which will rarely be arranged the way that I would like for it to. For when I stop trying to control it and make it to my own liking, then I'm free. I had a little phrase because I'm a motto guy. And when I'd feel myself feeling anxious, when I'd feel myself feeling inconvenience, when I'd get lost, you know, and be like, come on, I've walked 16 miles today and now I'm going to walk another three trying to find this hotel and I'm exhausted. Whenever something like that would happen, I would say, Tom, give way to the day. 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 And that doesn't mean live passively within the day and don't pull out your phone and pull out Google Maps and figure out how to get to the hotel. It doesn't mean any of those kinds of things. It doesn't mean don't plan and don't prepare. And, but it means that there is one who is in control of my day and it is not me. There's one who is in control of my life and I'm not him. It is that God designs our days for good. 
to mold us and to shape us, to break us and to remake us, to make us more like him. And so instead of fighting it, instead of resenting it, instead of resisting it, instead of trying to control it and trying to manage it or overmanage it in my case, give way to it, submit to it. Let him do his work, let him have his way. Give way to the day. Now, I tell you all of this, and I hope this is pretty obvious, because unless your name is Jeff Bezos and you're the founder of Amazon, right now you are trapped in a life and it is not going the way that you want it to go. Can we agree with that? And it is suffocating. Like, you're on the elevator, man, and you're in the corner. And here's the deal. It's even worse. I mean, it's capacity six, 43 other people, and and now you're trying not to breathe. So I can't touch anybody, I can't breathe, I'm on the elevator with all of these people and maybe they you know, have the problem or whatever, you know, like, and, and I'm looking up and it's not 14 floors. There are no numbers. It doesn't say it's going to be this many floors, this many days, this many hours, this many weeks, this many months. We're just traveling and when it stops, it stops. And when the door opens, the door opens. And when we get out, we get out and we'll all be thankful in that moment. But it is hard, particularly for those of us who like to, I'm just going to say it, overmanage their lives. Surrender isn't easy. And I think that even the strongest of us are feeling crushed by this, and not only by this, and this is the curious plot twist, but if you take the Bible seriously, then we're also being crushed by this unseen someone that most of us go through the entirety of our lives giving exactly zero thought to whatsoever. And I say that because when you open the Bible and you begin to read through it, what do you find? Well, you find light and darkness. You find order and chaos. You find fullness and emptiness. You find life and death. You find spiritual forces of good and spiritual forces of evil. You find God on one of the first pages and all over it. And on one of the first pages, you find a devil. And what does the Bible teach us about him? Well, lots, okay? But the most relevant, perhaps, for this moment is that he loves to get himself involved in our affairs. He loves to take a moment, like we're all in, trapped in the corner, on the elevator right now, and then prey upon all of our inherent vulnerabilities and insecurities and fears and anxieties. He loves to get involved in our hearts. And as Matt said, to pour gasoline on all of those things. And so it is, in fact, helpful that when we get to the end of this letter that we've been studying, that Paul wrote to this ancient church in the city of Ephesus, that he takes up this idea and he says, look, here's how to arm yourself. And not just for moments like this, though that's true. Not just for your inherent vulnerabilities and insecurities and fears and anxiety, though that's true. But even more so and primarily, here's how to arm yourself against the voice of the one who wants to corral all of that stuff up, parade it all before you in the most fearsome possible ways, and make you an anxious, fearful person. And he begins in Ephesians 6, verse 10. Paul comes to us and he says, finally, be strong, but in the what? Because the what matters. And here's what the what isn't. He doesn't say, finally, be strong in your own strength, the strength of your intellect, the strength of your creativity, the strength of your ability to control your life and to create for your life a predictable life and therefore a safe by your definition life. Be strong in your money. Be strong in your reputation, in your connections, in your resources, in your insurance plan. All of that's up in smoke right now. 
Look, we're all on the elevator. Red and yellow, black and white, rich and poor, Democrat, Republican, gay, straight, like everybody is on the elevator right now. None of us liking it. And none of what we have in our power is changing any of it. I mean, like we're doing everything we can, but that's all we can do. And that's not enough to make us feel good. Like that doesn't open the elevator door. It doesn't even tell us like when it's going to stop. And so Paul says, listen, there's a different kind of power available to you through faith in Jesus. Let me talk to you, Paul says about that. He says, listen, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. It's a command. He's not saying, think about that. No, he's like, no, 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 do this. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And maybe you're going, you know what? I'm on board. You're right. I'm weak, not powerful enough for this. How do I do this? Just keep reading. He says, put on the whole armor of God. Why? So that you may, may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil who loves to play on your insecurities and vulnerabilities in moments like this. For, as Paul now says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That is to say, our struggle is not just against the coronavirus and all of its effects. Our struggle is not just against our own innate insecurities and vulnerabilities and so forth. Our struggle is, and even primarily, against the one who wants to gather all of that up and use it to destroy us. We do not struggle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And since that's the case, Paul says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. The idea being by the strength of his power. Not yours, that's not working. And I know that some of you out there are just checking out Christianity right now. Like you're just kind of tuning in and going, I don't know, I feel vulnerable enough to at least watch. And so suddenly this seems like a tall order. You're like, okay, so Tom, now you want me to believe in a God I can't see. And then in addition, you want me to believe in a devil that I can't see. And from what I can tell, you want me to base that belief on what the Bible says about each. And my answer to that is actually, yes, I do. It's exactly right. I think that when the Bible speaks, it speaks truthfully. I think it is a word from another world. I think that God has spoken and in grace, he has recorded it and he has given us the record of his speech. And it is the scriptures which all together speak of Jesus. But I understand that if you're not grown up in that, if you haven't studied that, if you haven't been able to be thoughtful about that, okay, maybe that doesn't sound persuasive to you yet. So let's think about it this way instead. If the devil has a voice, that is to say, if he speaks, then he must be real. I mean, the voice comes from somewhere, in this case, from someone. And I think you've heard his voice. Now, I don't think he's come to you as you're sitting in your office or driving in your car and going, you are worthless, you know, and and you can hear it like with your ears and things rattle on the shelf and you're like, holy cow, you know, where did that come from? And I better not tell anybody about this or they're going to think that I've lost my mind, you know. It's not that. He doesn't speak that way, but instead he comes to you in quiet moments of despair, in moments of doubt and insecurity. And he says deep down in your heart, hey, you know, you're worthless, right? 
Or maybe it isn't worthless for you. Maybe he comes to you in your failure and he says, hey, uh, you know you're not good enough, right? Or maybe it isn't even that. Maybe it's pain and confusion and you're looking at your life and things are imploding and he gathers all of that stuff up and he brings it to you and goes, does this look like the love of God? Hey, you know what? You know that, you know that God doesn't actually love you, right? Or in our present milieu, he comes to us and he says, okay, so here's the deal. Worst fears are coming true. You know you're going to lose everything, right? Health, health of somebody you love, savings, business, job, relationship, whatever. You, you know you're going to lose everything, right? And here's what the Bible and life reveal to us. Each reveal that we are powerless against that voice. And so what is Paul doing? He's taking us to a different power. He's like, you're right, you you can't handle that. You're right, you, you can't stand firm against that. So let's go to the power of God. Dress yourself in his armor. He says, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. And what's interesting is that in laying out the various articles of this armor, he starts with the belt of truth and he ends with the sword of the spirit, which he specifically says is the word of God. So from beginning to end, the whole of this armor is an armor of truth. He's saying, guys, fill your heart and mind with God's truth. That's how you fight. And you say, well, you know, how? I mean, how does that work? Well, let's use you are worthless as an example. And I use that example because I feel like right now we're all vulnerable to that word. Why? Because in the world that we live in, guys, our self-worth is attached to our net worth. And our net worth has taken a hit. So you are worthless is particularly believable. Or maybe for you it isn't attached to your net worth, but it's attached to your ability to protect your family. Guess what? That's taken a hit. I mean, you know, you were doing what we can do. All of us are doing what we can do, but... Can we? Can we protect? Can we make sure? Can we? It's taking a hit right now. Or maybe for you, it's attached to your ability to to maintain, and forgive me, because I don't mean to be unkind, but the facade of having a perfect family. None of us have perfect families, but some of us find our identity in presenting as though we do, and now you're all stuck under the same roof and nobody can leave. Like, we could all of us probably use a little family distancing. Can we agree with that? It's taken a hit right now. And Paul's coming and going, look, there are two voices. There's the voice of the one you know that wants to do you damage, that wants to harm you, that wants to reaffirm your doubts about you. You are worthless, but do you know the voice of your father? Have you filled your heart and mind with his truth? Because he says something very different He comes to me and he comes to you and he says, listen, first off, okay, your self-worth is not attached to your net worth and your self-worth is not attached to your ability to protect your family and your self-worth is not attached to your ability to have a perfect family or even to present as having a perfect family. In fact, he says, your self-worth is not attached to performance by you in any area of life. It is attached to the perfect performance of Jesus. And if you want to know how valuable you are, I, God, gave the infinitely valuable life of Jesus. I sacrificed him to cover over all of your failures so that I might have you. 
Boy, that's a different message. That's a different value system. So Paul says, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and then he continues, and he says, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, which protects the most vital organs, and most importantly, it protects the heart. And you say, well, what does it protect the heart from? Well, let's just walk through the rest of the phrases. What are the, what are the other lies? What are the other things the evil one likes to say? You're not good enough. God doesn't love you. Hey, you know what? You, you're going to lose everything. You know that, right? I mean, that's, it's inevitable. It's coming. So what's the truth about those statements? You're not good enough. You know what the truth is? And it's jarring at first. Part of the truth is that that's actually true. We're not good enough. That is an absolute fact. We're not. I mean, God is absolutely perfect. He is absolutely holy. He is absolutely righteous. Do you think that you haven't failed him? Because I certainly have. Like, I have failed God. I have failed others. I have failed myself. I'm routinely disappointed in me. Routinely, I'm like, oh, that was a bad decision, or oh, that was selfish, or oh, man, I can't believe I said that. That was so mean, you know, and I didn't have the wisdom with which to handle this situation, and I wish that I could go back and have it over, and I need to do a little cleanup with this person over here, and I'm so disappointed by myself, and I have failed my own standards, much less God's standards. The evil one just grabs all that and goes, yeah, you know, you're a failure, right? And God's like, hey, um, hang on, whereas it is true that you have failed. And if the Bible came to us and said, no, you haven't failed, we just close the book and put it away because we know better. Whereas it is true that you have failed, it is true that Jesus has succeeded everywhere you have failed. It is true that for God so loved that he sent Christ into the world to succeed and then to sacrifice himself to cover all of your failures The breastplate of righteousness that Paul's talking about here is not the breastplate of my righteousness or of yours. Too many holes in that. It's too thin. It doesn't work. It's insufficient. It's the breastplate of the righteousness of Christ that covers over our hearts. And it is by the righteousness of Jesus given to me when I bring my life to him, broken and troubled as it is, that God looks at me and he says, Tom, not by your performance, but by the perfect and finished, by the way, performance of Jesus, you are good enough. In fact, you're my son. You're my family. And since you didn't earn it, you can't mess it up. It's really quite remarkable. And it leaves you with no one to impress, not even your own self. That's a big exhale. Life starts feeling a little less claustrophobic. And the other thing that that does is it establishes forever the answer to the question of does God love me? Because every time we ask that question, all we need to do is to look at the cross. Does God love me? Look at the cross. You know what? I'm not sure. Look at the cross. Does he really? Look at the cross. Christ suffered and died that he might have you. And he did it in love. There will always be seasons of time in our lives. There will always be things that happen in our lives, just like in the life of Jesus, just like in the life of all of the apostles, just like in the life of every significant character in the Bible, where if we just freeze in the moment and look at our circumstances, it will cause us to doubt the love of God. But the story's not over. It doesn't end with that moment. It doesn't even end with the moment of our life. It goes on into eternity. And God's promises are true and they are kept and not even death can forestall them. Does God love you? Look at the cross. Look at Jesus. My goodness. 
Emmanuel, God with you. And you say, yeah, but, you know, (laughs) I could still lose everything. And uh, you haven't addressed that one. And that's true. I, I would start by just saying everything is a mighty big word. It's like never or ever or always. And we use that stuff in relationship with each other. You never clean up after yourself. You know, there was that time three years ago on a Tuesday when I did clean up. Never's too big. And in all likelihood, everything is too big. It's almost always the case that what ends up happening is far less than what we feared, but it's not always the case that that is the deal. And it may be that in fact, some of us will lose everything. I guarantee you some of us will lose something. We've already lost. We're in the elevator and we've lost the ability to get off. And yet what does the word of the Lord say? It says that God has a purpose even in our losses. We sang it. You take what the enemy meant for evil and you turn it for good. And you hang on to that when all you're experiencing in the moment is the evil. I don't know what all the purposes of the Lord are in this virus. I really don't. But I know one of its purposes is not to scare us. I mean, the word of God comes and we've got to fill our hearts and minds with this. And it says that the Lord has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Other translations say, and of a sound mind. I like that one better. That appeals to me. It speaks to me more. Because I'm kind of the anxious type, man. You picked up on that yet? Look, I think one of the things that the Lord is doing in all of this is he is shattering our idols. In other words, he is coming to those of us who claim to believe and to trust in him but really have trusted in other things. And he's going, yeah, those other things don't work. Money doesn't get you out of this one. Connections doesn't get you out of this one. I mean, all of these things. Our healthcare system, I mean, right now, I am so thankful for it, but, you know, is it sufficient? I mean, all of these things that we trust in, God is showing us the deficiencies of, and he's doing it to bring us to himself, to bring us to the one who doesn't fail in the end. God has created us for another world, guys, in which there will be no pandemics. And yet I think that it takes sometimes a pandemic for some of us at least to stop and to consider him in that other world. And I think that's what he's doing. That's part of his purpose. And so Paul comes and he talks about the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. And then he continues in verse 15 by saying this. He says, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, by which you have peace with God for forever no matter what happens in this pandemic or any other time. In all circumstances, he continues, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts, which are the devastating lies of the evil one. And then he says, take the helmet of salvation, which says that you belong to God and covers your mind. You can see this as a battle of the heart and mind. Put that on your head. And the sword of the spirit, here it is, which is the word of God. And then he ends with this. He says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. 
To that end, he says, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Pray for you. Pray for your family. Pray for each other. Pray for us. Pray for our health care providers. Pray for our leaders. Pray for everybody. Pray. You say, well, what do I pray? Well, I think for starters, you can pray that they and you, I'll read it to you, will surrender to the life that God gives you, which will rarely be arranged the way that you would like for it to. For when you stop trying to control it and make it to your liking and simply trust the Lord and walk with him, doing what you can and just trusting him, listening to his voice and filling your heart with his word, all right, then, then you're free. I want to give you four really practical things to do. And the first is that if you do not have faith in Jesus, I want to encourage you to just surrender to Jesus. To just go, hey, you know what? Your word and life sort of match. And here's what they both say to me. I actually have failed. Like, I'm not, I'm not good enough for myself, you know, much less God. Like, I'm disappointed in me at times. Man, Lord, you're perfect. However, God, I believe that you have sent Jesus into the world the perfect one, to lay down his perfect life by his blood and grace to cover over all of my imperfections, past, present, and future, to rescue me, to clothe me in his righteousness, to declare me good, failures forgiven and notwithstanding. Lord, fill me with your spirit. Give me that forgiveness. And by your word, begin to to fill my heart and life. I would encourage you to do that. That is the first step in a relationship with God. The second thing I would encourage you to do is to decrease your intake of news and increase your intake of God. Listen, the news is a business. I'm very thankful for it. It gives us a lot of information. It gives us too much information. It is designed, sorry, to make money. How? By gluing you to the television or to your phone or to whatever device it is that you're watching the news on by creating in you this sense of angst that says, if I'm not paying attention to the news 24 hours a day, seven days a week, the world is going to end and I'm going to miss the ending of the world. And you know what? To be honest, if that's the way it works out, don't tell me. I'd like to enjoy the last 15 minutes of my life, you know? I don't need to freak out. If it's ended, great. But how much are you taking in of that? And how much are you taking in of the truth of the Lord? I mean, just compare it. Say, I'm spending this much time every day reading and looking at and watching and whatever, add it up, and I'm spending this much time doing personal worship, listening to the podcast, Tuning in on Wednesday, Wednesday night and Sunday mornings. Praying, etc. How does it balance out? I'm going to give you my practice for what it's worth. And, you know, I'm easily agitated. So, I mean, maybe you have a higher threshold than me. But I'm reading one article a day. That's it. So I try to find the article that looks like that's the one that's going to give me the update of the day. That's the one I read. I have people send me articles all of the time. Forgive me if you're one of those people. And then, you know, I mean, I might have chosen your article, but I don't know. Odds are that maybe I didn't. And then they'll ask me, did you read the article that I sent you? And I'm like, I did not because I have a one article a day limit. I don't watch the news at all. Zero. I don't listen to the talk radio about it. Decrease your intake of news. Increase your intake of God. Thirdly, engage in kneeling prayer. 
As Matt said, throughout the Lenten season, we are at 11.09 after Luke 11.9. Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Kneeling wherever we're at as a church and we're praying. We're getting a prayer prompt through the app and teaching on prayer and model prayers to help us learn how to pray and so forth. Really, really helpful. I want to add to that, if, if you would. I would encourage you to make kneeling prayer the very first thing you do in the morning. Like you get out of bed, you kneel, you pray, and then you get your coffee even. Like it could be 10 seconds, but you're centering yourself in the Lord. Lord, fill me with your spirit this day. The fruit of your spirit are love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Manifest that in my life today. Add to it thankfulness. Add to it humility. Pray in the morning. Pray at 1109. And then just before you go to bed, praise in prayer. Just get a psalm. Start with Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Right? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and what? Forget not all his benefits. And he lists the benefits. Who heals all your diseases. Forgives all of your iniquities. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Right? Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Like... Take time at the end of the day to praise, not to rehearse all the things that you're stressed about. And then the last thing that I would encourage you to do is to create three by five cards. And I brought my stack and I started this years ago. So most of these cards, probably half of these cards actually are Bible verses. And I've just gone to the concordance of the Bible. And so if, for example, fear is your thing, anxiety is your thing, worthlessness is your thing, go to the concordance in the Bible, look up verses, you'll find it in the back of the Bible, find the ones that you feel like, yes, that speaks to me, write it on a three by five card. And then before you go to sleep at night, just before you do your kneeling prayer, read them and let them minister to your heart. Let them speak to your soul. So half of these, for me, are Bible verses, and the other half are just statements by really amazing Christians that really just spoke to me over the last couple of years, and when I hear one, I just write it down. I want to close today with four quotes from, from a really amazing Christian lady named Corey Tenboom. Corey Tenboom was a Dutch watchmaker. She was the first woman ever certified as a watchmaker in the Netherlands. She and her father and her sisters hid and saved the lives of Jewish people during the Nazi occupation in World War II. Uh, They were eventually caught. They were put into Ravensbrück concentration camp. So we have coronavirus, and they had that. She wrote a famous book called The Hiding Place that I'd encourage you to read. But I find her to be incredibly wise. And I think maybe these most particularly speak to where we're at. She says, you will find it necessary to let things go simply for the reason that they are too heavy. Just let that sink in for a moment and let it examine you. What are you trying to pick up? You know, and it's like, you know, or maybe you get it off the ground and you're like, you know, it's like, how far do you have to go? Nine miles. Oh no, it's too much. You can't control it. You can't carry it alone. You will find it necessary to let things go simply for the reason that they are too heavy. And there are hands that you can let them go into, you see. You're not alone. She says, worrying is carrying tomorrow's load 
with today's strength. Carrying two days at once. It's moving into tomorrow ahead of time. Worrying doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. Love this. When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the driver. And the driver is trustworthy, which is the last statement she makes. She says, never be afraid to entrust an unknown future. That's where we're at, and we're feeling it. It's always where we're at, but right now it's like in stark relief. Never be afraid to entrust an unknown future to a known God. Guys, our battle is not just against flesh and blood. It is against one who wants to destroy us with all of the other things that are already threatening to destroy us. It's not a battle we fight with our fists or with our dollars. It's a battle of faith that is fought in the mind and in the heart. Come to faith in Jesus and fill your heart and your mind with the word of your Father who says you You are so valuable. You, because of Jesus, are good enough. Hey, newsflash, I, look at the cross, love you. And if you lose everything, you have me. And in me and for all of eternity, I mean, let's just be honest, you have everything. So let's take a moment and pray together and and just pray through some of that stuff. Father, we come to you this morning, uh, and we confess our fears, Lord. (laughs) We confess our anxieties. We confess the sin of of trying to control everything or over-control everything. Lord, give us faith and give us faith in Jesus. If you do not have faith in Jesus, I would encourage you, just take this moment right now and come to him wherever you're at in prayer. And, you know, in the quietness of your own heart, say, Lord, you know what? I've failed others. I've failed myself. And I'm pretty sure I've also failed you. I can't undo those things. But I believe that you undo those things through Jesus. Forgive me, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Fill me with your spirit. Give me this eternal life. Make your word come alive to me by the presence of your spirit in my heart and mind. Just give that to the Lord. And if you have faith in Jesus, just stop for a moment and praise him for a second because I think we've just been bombarding him with, I need this and I need that and please do this and don't miss this. And I mean, I have. Stop for a second of praise. Remember who your God is. Listen for his voice. Just take a second and do those things. Heavenly Father, be a father to us indeed one who comforts one who walks through darkness with us making us secure 
one whose attention is toward us and whose intentions toward us are altogether good. One who is tender and merciful. One who is altogether wise and in control. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Be found by us. Let us meet with you, God. I pray, Lord, you would give us faith to believe in your word, that it is indeed a word from another world, that it contains the wisdom of the creator and sustainer of all things, that in it is a skill for living and a perspective on life and on eternity that settles our hearts and centers our souls. And let us entrust to you the things that are too heavy for us to carry. Let us give to you, Lord, our trust and faith in the tunnel in which we're in. Be known by us and to us. And be found by us, God, as we go looking for you. Lord, we pray that your spirit would fall upon your people. Give us the spirit for the sake of Jesus. God's empowering presence in the world. Take up residence in our heart, Lord. Fall upon us. Take us over as your body in this world, in this moment, and live your life out through us. Lord, have your way. And do your work, we pray in Jesus' name.